All right, we in the Gospel of Mark, the eighth chapter. All right, I'm gonna begin reading at the 31st verse. <clears throat> it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray together. Lord God, I ask for your word to be communicated in a way that edifies your sheep, that transforms us, that lets us know where our sin is, where we need to improve, where our weaknesses are. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit, we would be motivated by the uh, exposition of the word to change things that we can change and to trust you with the things that we cannot. So be glorified in this moment. Help me to do your word well. And we ask it all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so back in my early 20s, uh, I was about, uh, I would say, 21 years old or so. And, and I was at this point in my life where I'm basically trying to, I'm becoming a man, right? I'm trying to figure this thing out. I'm trying to figure out uh, what I'm going to be doing with my life. I'm trying to figure out what my career would be, where I'm going to work. And I'm just kind of going through that, uh, that early 20s phase that we all go through, right? Or some of you here that may be in that phase today. So I'm wrestling through this, and I didn't have a job at the time. I was not working at the time. Uh, oh, backtrack. At this time, you didn't have, like, Indeed and like uh, LinkedIn and like all these uh, online apps and stuff like that that we have. Now, you, you, you didn't have that stuff. You just, you want to find a job, you have to walk in the place of business, right, and, and ask for the supervisor and get an app. Or you have to do what I did during this period of time in my life. I grabbed the Plain Dealer newspaper. You have to go to the classified section. Y'all remember that? Yeah. Go to the classified, and in that classified section, you'll see all these, um, all these job descriptions, like all these different jobs and places, offering places of work, and you'll see other things in that section as well. So I'm going through the classified section, right? I get me a plain dealer, and I find my dream job, like in plain sight in this newspaper, right? It says something along the lines of business marketing manager. 
$400 a week. Before I even read the rest, I said, that's the one. 21 years old, y'all. I say, that's the job I've been waiting for my whole life. Business marketing manager, uh, uh, $400 a week, roughly. This is the best part. It said, no degree needed. Then after that, it said something that blew my mind. It said, no experience needed. I'm like, this is speaking my language. It says all you need is a high school diploma and or GED, and you, you, can, you can have this job. So if you're interested in this job, call this number and set up an interview. I haven't even filled the application out yet. They're talking about interviews, right? So I'm excited. Y'all done found my dream. John about to be making $400 a week as this new business marketing manager, right? So I get in my car on the interview day, my 94 Burgundy Ford Taurus with dang near 2,000, 100,000 miles on it, and the tank is on E because I'm not working, right? I'm living in Maple Heights with my parents. The interview was all the way in Parma Heights, right? So I get in my car with barely enough gas, but I didn't care because I was about to get my dream job as a business marketing manager making $400 a week. So I'm like, I'm about to have enough money to get gas in this car very soon. So I make the decision to make the hike all the way to Parma. And it's like a building. And y'all know how you have like a building. It's not just one business. There's suites. Like there's different businesses on every floor. So I go to like the second or third floor. I find where I'm supposed to go. And I walk through the door. And they got, I think they had like a receptionist there. Mr. Henderson, are you here for the job interview? I'm like, yeah, I'm here for the business marketing manager position. $400 a week, no experience needed. That's me. I'm here for that. Say, follow me, Mr. Henderson. We go to the room, right? And he opened up the door. And the first thing I noticed is a large room. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. <laughs> Usually when you have an interview, it's a small area, a little office with a table and two chairs, right? Fast forward back to my interview. Open up the door. There's this large room with this big old conference table in the middle of the room. Sitting around the conference table is about eight other applicants. So I'm sitting here, you know, I tried to play it all cool, count country, what's up, y'all? <laughs> On the inside, I'm getting a little curious, like what have I gotten myself into, right? So I'm thinking, am I in competition with all these other people or are we all on the same team? Come to find out, we're all on the same team. We're not competing against each other. All of us are being offered this job. So we're just sitting at the table. It's like when you're just waiting for the principal to come in. Then the guy comes in who's the, the, the supervisor, the manager or whatever, and he says, all right, we're going to get this interview started. I'm Mr. Such and Such. If you're here, that means you apply for the business marketing manager position. So he's like, what I want to do is I want to tell you guys the details of this job and what you're going to be doing. Because remember, the ad was very vague in the newspaper. All it says I was going to be a business marketing manager. It didn't tell me anything I was going to be doing, right? But it was going to give me $400 a week, no degree needed, no experience. So I went for it, right? So we're back in the, in the interview room. And he's like, what you guys are going to be doing is you're going to be in sales. I'm like, okay, marketing, sales. I, I could see that. Okay, I can understand how this is the direction this is going. So I'm like... What am I going to be selling? Brother, go to the back. 
back out. Brother Brand got a fire extinguisher. True story. I'm not making this story. This happened to your boy, 21 years old. This is what happened. He pulls out a fire extinguisher. Now I'm thinking to myself, I don't know who's going to be buying a random fire extinguisher in this boy. But business marketing manager, $400 a week, no degree needed, no experience needed. Sign me up. Give me my cubicle. <laughs> Give me my headset, my phone, and my computer. I'm going to sell these fire extinguishers. <laughs> it was at this point in the story where this brother dropped a bombshell on us that shook the whole room. He says, the means by which you are going to sell these fire extinguishers is you're going to go door to door through your neighborhood in the middle of July in this hot sun and you're going to knock on random people's doors and ask them to buy something that by law they already probably got in their house. What took place next, y'all, I'm telling you, if I ever write a book, this is going to be in the book. The dude knew he lost the crowd at that point. So this is what he did. Brother created like a safe place on the table to like do an experiment, right? I'm like, what is this joker about to do? Brother started creating small fires in the office to show us how effective the fire extinguisher were. Man, I don't know how I sat through the rest of that mess. I was so mad that the interview ended. I stormed off downstairs, man. I'm like, I could not believe I had been duped like this. <laughs> the whole thing was a sham, y'all, from beginning to end. And I should have saw the signs that it wasn't adding up. But when they told me $400 a week, no degree needed, no experience needed, I didn't ask no questions. I learned a valuable lesson that day. <laughs> Before you get into something, it's always good to know in advance what you're getting yourself into. That ad did not have any job details, and I made assumptions, but I didn't know what I was getting myself into until he pulled out that fire extinguisher. The beautiful thing I love about the gospel, what I love about the Lord Jesus Christ, is that when he recruited people to become his disciples, he told them up front what it was going to cost them. There was no manipulation. There was no giving them a false hope. There was no giving them false dreams. Jesus would come to people, and he would invite them to be his disciple. And then he would say things like this. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Are you sure you really bought this life? He says things like, no man putting his hand into the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Are you sure you want to be my disciple? Unlike this job interview that I went to, when Jesus is inviting people to be a disciple, 
He lets us know what it's going to cost us, what the details are. Why? So that we can make an informed decision whether we want to be his disciples or whether we want to walk away. He don't chase you if you say no. He don't force you if you don't want to make a willful choice. He puts the offer on the table. And he says, if anybody wants to come, let them come. But when people would walk away, he let them walk. Give me one example in the scripture where Jesus had a disciple leave him. And he said, I'm not talking about his wayward sheep who bumped their head and they got to come back. No, I'm talking about the person who proved they didn't really want to be on the mission. He allowed things to turn out the way they're supposed to turn out because he wanted to, to, to separate the wheat from the tares. If I could sum up the one thing that Jesus expects from all his disciples, the one thing he wants you to get, if I could summarize it in one word, the one thing he wants us all to know if we want to be his disciples, here's the one thing he wants you to know in advance. You're going to experience sacrifice. We can sum it up all in that word. Sacrifice. If you want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know now. If you're already a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to know now. Sacrifice needs to be the mark of your life. I want to talk about sacrifice today, and I want to take my time. (coughs) Courtney. Uh, rebuke me last Sunday. So I'll receive her rebuke stuff. I need to take my time. So I'm going to take my time today. I'm going to tell you, I'll receive that, sis. I'm going to take my time. Because we got to get this. If we can understand this, this teaching on sacrifice that we're about to walk through, I'm telling you, we will set ourselves up for a successful Christian life. And when I say successful, I'm not talking about worldly things. I'm talking about spiritual success and effectiveness in the kingdom. If you can grasp sacrifice... You on your way to victory. So here's what I want to do. I want to cover a variety of different sections. And I'm going to say them now, so if you want to write them down, you can, because I, I want us to be able to follow where I'm going. Number one, I want to talk about the model of sacrifice. The model of sacrifice. Number two, I want to talk about the rejection of sacrifice. <clears throat> Thirdly, I want to talk about the application of sacrifice. Fourth, I want to talk about the consequences of sacrifice, or I should say the lack of it. And lastly, I want to talk about the reward of sacrifice. All right, so that's the model, the rejection, the application, the consequence, and the reward of sacrifice. Can we get in the text? Jesus is with his disciples. He says, verse 31, backtrack. This is right after Peter just told him, uh, Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? Jesus says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not let you know that, but your father who's in heaven. This is the same conversation. He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. 
says, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he not talking in parables no more because it's about to go down. He not talking in riddles, metaphors, none of that. He's saying, listen, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is about to suffer. And he's going to be rejected by the religious leaders of Jerusalem. This rejection is going to result in him being killed. But after he's killed, he says, I'm going to come back in three days. The suffering is the rejection, and the rejection leads to his death on the cross. But notice that it doesn't say he told them this. The text says he began to teach them. Don't miss that detail. He didn't just say, I'm about to be crucified. He says he began to teach. Now, I looked that word up in the Greek just to make sure this is not a translation editor issue. No, that word means to teach, to instruct, to explain something to somebody. That word is used on purpose because what Jesus likely did here was begin to show them from the Hebrew Bible, also known as the Old Testament, all the prophecies that foretold his crucifixion and his resurrection. That's why he says he began to teach them this. Before he's speaking in parables, the kingdom of God is like this. And then he would expand on the mystery. He was the kingdom of God is like that. He says, no, I'm about to be crucified. I'm going to tell you now what's about to happen. And I need to show you in the scriptures so when it happens, you know that I was telling the truth. All right. All so he would have opened up to, to, to scriptures such as uh, uh, Exodus chapter 12, where it talks about the children of Israel sacrificing the lamb and then taking the Passover lamb and spreading the blood on the doorpost of the homes so that when the death angel came in judgment, every house that was covered by the blood of the lamb did not experience God's judgment. He began to show them that and to say, that Passover lamb is really me. He began to walk them through, through scriptures such as when David spoke in the Psalms where he says, they, they pierced my hands and my feet. He began to explain what all these mysteries mean. He began to walk them through the Psalms, I'm sorry, through Isaiah 53 where it says, he was crushed for our iniquities and bruised for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was on his shoulders and it pleased Yahweh to crush him. He began to show him that's talking about me. He began to take them to the Psalms where David said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Yahweh will not allow his Holy One to experience decay or abandon his soul in the grave. He said there's a resurrection that David was talking about and that's talking about me. He began to teach them what the scriptures said. But notice it says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Uh-oh. That the Son of Man must suffer. That means this cross, this crucifix, this death of the Messiah is necessary. It must happen. So the question is, why? Terrell, do we have that scripture, Hebrews 10? Don't have that. Okay, I'm going to go off memory. So if you look at the book of Hebrews, the 10th chapter, 
The author of the Hebrew says something powerful. He says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. What it means is that in order for sins to be forgiven, somebody got to die. But the person who dies to bring remission of the sins cannot be in the same category as those who need remission of sin. So Jesus being the lamb without spot nor blemish is qualified to be the savior because of his righteousness and he sheds his blood so that the sinner's sin could be wiped away. So, so Jesus says this must take place because nobody gets saved unless this happens. Ladies and gentlemen, this introduces us to the concept of sacrifice. John 10, 18, Jesus says this. No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down that I might take it back up. What does that mean? Nobody killing me up in here. I'm making a voluntary choice to lay my life down willfully because the only way I can die is if I give somebody permission to take it from me. So he said, nobody taking it. I'm laying it down. What did we take from that? Jesus knew what his crucifixion was going to cost him. The pain of experience, God's wrath on the cross. He knew what was going to happen. But he still made a willful choice to do it anyway. That is what we mean by sacrifice. Jesus is our model for sacrifice. That's our first point. He is our model for sacrifice. Sacrifice is to be in a scenario and to say, if I do this, it's going to bring suffering and inconvenience upon me. But it's going to bring benefit and blessing upon others. And when you make that choice, knowing what's going to happen, the Bible calls it sacrifice. It's not making a choice that you thought would work out, then it don't work out. You say, look at everything I've sacrificed. No, you didn't sacrifice. You thought it was going to work out, and it didn't. Sacrifice is, I know this is going to be painful. I know this is going to hurt me. I know this is going to give me the short end of the straw. But if it's going to help somebody else, I'm going to voluntarily lay my rights down for the love of others. Jesus is our model of sacrifice. Now we got to talk about the rejection of sacrifice because there's resistance to this. And even as I'm preaching, if you're not feeling it now, as I continue to go, you're going to feel some tension on the inside. Because the flesh does not want to apply what we're about to talk about. Verse 32. And he was stating the matter, matter plainly. Ain't time for parables. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man. Imagine a world where Jesus drops this theological revelation on his disciples. 
And Peter has the nerve to rebuke the Savior. What does it mean to rebuke? Here's a misconception. Rebuke does not mean I rebuke you. That's not a biblical rebuke. The word rebuke means to bring correction. To say I rebuke you is not a correction. You're just saying I'm going to correct you. <laughs> a rebuke is a statement that corrects somebody's mistake. So let's say if Danina, I just happened to look at you. Danina, not a thief, y'all. She just, I saw her, so just roll with the illustration. Let's say if Danina's stealing stuff. I say, Danina, you're a Christian. Why are you stealing? You need to get that back and repent. That's a rebuke. And I never said, I rebuke you. Okay? So, so when it says Peter began to rebuke him, he didn't say, Jesus, I rebuke you. What he did was he corrected Jesus for his statements. Now, Mark didn't tell us what Peter said, but if you look at Matthew, the 16th chapter, Matthew tells us. It says this. Jesus rebuked, I'm sorry, Peter rebuked Jesus and said, God forbid, may you never go to the cross. That's what he told Christ. That's, that was the rebuke. That was the correction. God forbid, may it never happen that you go to the cross. Jesus is talking about sacrifice, right? Peter says, I don't want you doing that. Why would Peter say such a thing? After seeing the miracles, after hearing the preaching, after walking with Jesus for a period of time, how could he make a statement so foolish? Here's why, and this is going to make us a lot more sympathetic towards Peter. Peter is a part of a greater Jewish community in which the whole ancient Near Eastern world around that time in the Israelite community, the general Concession, consensus, was that Christ, the Messiah, when he comes into the world, he would be the conquering king, not the suffering servant. He would be the lion of Judah, not the lamb of God. They did not fully understand the Hebrew prophecies that said he would be both. And I believe it's because the flesh naturally is more appealed to the conquering king than we are attracted to the suffering servant. Peter is just adopting the view that everybody in Israel had. And he wasn't totally wrong because Jesus is the conquering king. And he will come back on the white horse and rule and reign over his enemies, but not before he's the suffering servant. So in Peter's theology, he says this. You're supposed to be the king uh, I'm sorry, the, the heir of King David, who going to destroy our Goliaths, the Romans, and you're going to destroy all our Gentile enemies. In other words, Peter would have looked at Jesus like this, if I could paraphrase what Peter was thinking. May you never go to the cross. Don't you see all these Romans oppressing the people of Israel? Jesus, Israel is under Roman jurisdiction. We don't even have our own king. There's no David, no Solomon. We got King Herod over us. Pontius Pilate, who's a Roman, is the governor of Judea. They eat pigs. They sacrifice to idols. What do you mean you're not coming to destroy them? In other words, (laughs) Peter is thinking about his own agenda. 
his own benefit. How this benefits him and his fleshly desires, not the spiritual significance of what Jesus' death would have accomplished for him. What do we learn about this? The rejection of sacrifice is rooted in selfishness. The rejection of sacrifice, if you are repelled by this, is because there's selfishness deeply rooted inside of us. We want this. We want that. We need it this way. We need it that way. I cannot inconvenience myself for somebody else because myself is of priority. Selfishness is the opposite of sacrifice. So, so this self-centeredness that comes from the wickedness of human flesh that we live in every day is at the core of a lack of sacrifice. Let's spend some time here. He tells Peter in verse 33, he says, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. <laughs> Says, Peter took Jesus to the side, right? Mm-hmm. Privately. It says, but Jesus, seeing his disciples, meaning that they was like, what they talking about over there? <laughs> Y'all ever see the Kevin Hart meme where he'd be like, that was the, that was the disciples. They're like, what, they, what Peter didn't say? Jesus saw that the disciples were overhearing the conversation. And he said, oh, I got to rebuke him now. Why? This going to be contagious. If he bring this selfish spirit, they're not going to be able to deal with this persecution. If they're not thinking about nobody but self, when the sword is on their neck, they're going to abandon me. So he says, I got to address this now because they're watching. Let's, let's make it clear right now. He says, I rebuke you. Satan. Why? He says you're setting your mind on man's interests. What's that? Selfishness. Not on God's. You're prioritizing self. You're prioritizing this world, not the things of the kingdom. I rebuke you. Now, here's the question. Why would Peter, I'm sorry, why would Jesus, this is the elephant in the room we all wondering, Why did he call him out his name like that? (laughs) Like, we all thinking, like, why, come on, why you do Peter like that? Didn't you just say, blessed are you, Simon Barjona? That was, we're not the same conversation. Now he's Satan, though. (laughs) The word Satan comes from the Hebrew word hasatan, which means the adversary, the enemy, the opponent. But Jesus ain't saying it in a general sense. When he says, get behind me, Satan, he's speaking to the arch enemy of God. The devil is who he's addressing. Now, here's the thing. It says he he tells him, get behind me. Theologians debate what that means. The the Greek could imply that it means uh, just a fancy way of saying, get out my way. You hindrance. You stumbling block. That's a possibility. Others would say, no, it means literally get behind me. In other words, recalibrate your jacked up thinking and get back behind me and follow me. Get in line, Peter. You out of line right now. Get behind me. But he didn't say get behind me, Peter. 
talk to me. He said, get behind me, Satan. Saying, I got authority over you too, devil, because the reason he said what he said is because you were involved in it. Now that begs the question, how can Satan be involved in Peter's foolish choice? Oh, man, you didn't come to the right place. Look down at the text carefully. It says, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your Uh-oh. The battlefield of the mind. Actions don't start with actions. They start with the mind. The thought is formulated. The mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart, and then actions take place. The reason he rebukes Peter is because he willfully yielded to something. But the reason he calls him Satan is because he knows that what you just yielded to came from that devil. So the question is, how does he do that? The mind. We call it an intrusive thought. You ever think a thought that you didn't think? It hits you later. You ever have a thought in your mind? And you're like, where did that thought come from? Let's look at it in a positive sense, because God can do this. The Holy Ghost will place a thought in your mind to trigger a response. Last year, I was sitting at my, my living room couch, 2 in the morning, and the thought popped into my mind, go check on your boys, my two oldest. Now, Logically, that makes no sense because my tradition is to always check on my boys through the night. Uh-huh. Randomly go up to their room, make sure they're good. Feel prompted, I lay hands and I pray on them. Or I just, you know, just, I love my boys. I just go and check on them, right? That's just something I do throughout the night. So the night that the Holy Spirit said that, I'd already checked on them about three, four times that night. It's 2 a.m., I got my computer out. I'm a late out, so I'm about to get it in. I'm about to get some work done. Thought. Boom, check on your sons. I said, what? Where did that come from? Put the computer down. Walk up the stairs. I check on Elijah. He good. I look at Levi. It's dark, so I shine a nightlight on him. His eyes are swollen shut. His face is like a beach ball. He had a progressing allergic reaction that we didn't know was progressing in his sleep. I had to rush him to the emergency room. But the Holy Spirit, because he loves me and he loves my son, he says, I'm going to put a thought, because he's not thinking it. I'm going to put a thought in his head to trigger a response. We believe only God can do that to Christians, not the devil. That's where we go wrong. Oh, man. Controversy. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Be not anxious for anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, along with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Guard your mind. The peace of God will protect your mind. Why does my mind need to be guarded if it's not subject to attack? You don't attack nothing. You don't guard nothing unless it's vulnerable. 
What Satan does, and we have countless examples of this in the Bible. Like when it says that Satan enticed David to take a census of the people of Israel and God judged them for it. These thoughts come from the enemy. And they trigger a response. So here's what we'll do, y'all. We'll be in a situation where we'll be struggling with a sin. And we have beat the flesh into submission. We praying. We reading our Bible. We going to discipleship groups. We in accountability. We staying in community. We confessing our sins to other people. We doing everything we can do in the, in the outward sense to, to grow in our faith. But we still got this monkey on our back. This anger problem ain't going nowhere. This lust issue ain't going nowhere. I'm sitting at the computer, and a thought will pop into your head. You know, watch some porn. Ain't nobody, ain't nobody home. Ain't nobody know you delete it later. Let's have real conversations. Just get on your phone, type in as well. Ain't nobody gonna know, man. It's your phone. You got a lock on it. You lock everything. You can go delete everything later. Thoughts we're not thinking. Satan will put this stuff in your mind. And we think, well, because I've done all the other things, I'm I'm, I'm in community, I'm doing this. Why do I still got this monkey on my back? Here's why. Because we don't think like the ancient Israelites thought. We believe that our only enemy is the flesh. Read ancient Jewish sources. They believe, based on the Old Testament, that 50% of the problem is sinful flesh that we got from Adam. The other 50% is intrusive thoughts, satanic temptation that comes from the kingdom of darkness. We only fighting one enemy, the flesh. We ain't fighting the other one, so we got partial victory. And you know what's amazing about it? We think the flesh is the only enemy when it's written in plain sight that it's not. Did not Paul say in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. He's telling us that ain't just one battle. There's a darkness. There's a kingdom out here, out for your soul. You can't just deal with it in the flesh. You got to deal with it in the spirit, too. What do I mean deal with it in the spirit? Not just praying, but praying and fasting. Yes, laying on of hands. I'm not talking about no hyper-charismatic cult falling out on the ground and squirming like worms, emotionalism stuff. I'm talking about what the New Testament says, laying hands, anointing with oil, and praying in the authority of Christ. That is what the Bible commands us to do. We got to fight this battle in the spirit, not just in the flesh. So when it comes to the sacrifice, the selfishness we wrestling with, we think it's just not knowing that Satan doing us the way he did Peter. Bloop. (laughs) Intrusive thought term. Man, you don't need to make no sacrifice. When the last time you was happy? Don't you want to live? Ain't you gone without a lot your whole life already? Don't God owe you? You've been walking in holiness for the last two years. Man, you done made enough sacrifices. You ain't seen the benefit yet. Man, you ain't got to do that. That comes from the devil. Jesus addresses the source of this lack of sacrifice and why we reject it. So we reject sacrifice, number one, sinful flesh. Number two, we got an enemy who's putting thoughts in our mind. 
Let's look at what happens next. Verse 34, the application of sacrifice. <coughs> and he summoned the crowd with his disciples. Notice he like, this ain't just the 12. He said, all y'all come here. Mm-hmm. Jesus about to get the belt out. <laughs> and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, when we read it, because we're reading literature, we can kind of miss the tone that I think Jesus would have been speaking with. Keep it in context. Peter just rebuked him, man, for doing what God sent him into the world to do, the pinnacle of his ministry. Now you got the other disciples seeing this foolishness. He rebukes Peter, because now he's even mad at the devil. Then it says he called the crowd. This is what I believe Jesus would have did. Everybody come to the middle right now. If anybody wants to be my disciple, here's what you got to do. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. If you want to follow me, this is what it's going to cost you. Now make your choice. We got to remove this jacked up way of looking at Jesus that he's this soft guy who's always just jolly, and yes, he's meek. Yes, he's our loving father, but he is a lion who requires obedience from his people. I believe he walked in that crowd and said, let all y'all come here. If if you're going to play games with it, then play games with it. But if you want to be my disciple, here's what you got to do. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. What does that mean? Deny yourself. Lay your passions down. Lay down what you want to such a degree that if they come to you and say, deny me and and live, confess me or die, you choose death. Let me run that back. Deny yourself. Lay your passions down. So if your passion is I want to live, but they got a cross waiting for you over here because you affiliated with me, you better choose that cross. Don't choose your own desire to, to keep living. So, so to deny yourself is to lay your passions down. To take up your cross is literal. He's saying he's preparing his disciples for martyrdom is what he's doing. And we know historically many of them died by crucifixion. Some were burned alive. Some were fed to lions. Others had their heads cut off. Others were stoned to death. Okay, Peter crucified upside down. Paul beheaded. Uh, Stephen stoned. So he, he's preparing them. For the suffering that's about to happen because they affiliated with Christ. So to take up your cross means literally you're going to have to take up that cross and be crucified like I was because I'm the model of sacrifice. Right. So let's break this down further. There's a metaphorical sense. In which Jesus used the term take up your cross. The literal sense is be crucified. But metaphorically, it means something else. Well, B, why are you saying this is metaphorical? Because when we look at the book of Luke and his account, Jesus adds a word that Mark don't mention. He says, if anybody wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. You can't be physically crucified more than once. Once it happens, it's over with. Not coming back from that unless it's a miracle take place. So when he says take up your cross Daily, he's saying deny yourself every day. Every day you wake up, 
Your answer should be, not my will be done, but your will be done. That's the prayer every morning. It is to deny your passions. Now, when we first hear that, here's what we think. Oh, deny myself? I'm already doing that. I ain't committing adultery. I ain't stealing. I ain't fornicating. I ain't smoking. I ain't getting drunk. I'm only cussing a little bit compared to how I used to cuss. <laughs> Y'all know that'd be the last sin God get rid of. We know, we know that'd be hard to control that tongue. I, I, I know it. I know it. Well, you cut me off on the freeway. I got to I gotta catch that tongue quick. It'd be ready to pop off in this bar. <laughs> that'd be the last one to go. We think denying ourselves. It's saying no to sin. Oh, my goodness. I don't even think that's even what Jesus has in mind when he says this word. When he says this, deny yourself, he means disown all your rights, all your passions. This is about to be hard to receive. Let me just put the disclaimer out there. All our dreams. All our hopes that we've had since we was kids, teenagers, early 20s, everything we thought we were going to do, everything we want to do, all the things that bring us joy and pleasure and happiness in this life. Jesus says, deny it. (sighs) What? All of it. Even good stuff. Deny it. Even if it's noble, deny it. Even if it's on the surface a good thing, say no to it. Here's what that looks like. I take all my wants, my desires, the career I wanted, the house I wanted, the neighborhood I wanted, the kids I wanted, the spouse I wanted, the bank account I wanted, all of it. And I bring it to the Father. And I drop it in his hands. And I say, I'm going to let you choose what you want me to have and what you don't want me to have. You driving this car from here on out because you're Lord, I'm slave. You're going to drive the car, and whatever you say I can pick up, I'm going to pick up. Whatever dream you say I can keep, I'm going to keep alive. But everything you say no to, no matter how bad I might want it, I'm going to take up my cross every day and say it ain't for me. Every day I'm going to do that because you're Lord. That's hard to receive. It's, it's, it's hard. In my preparation, it was hard. I felt it emotionally. Can I encourage you for a minute? I know. I've been preaching long enough to know. You can't lay that hammer down and go home. Ain't nobody going to watch the Browns. We going to go home and go to sleep. <laughs> or take me now, Jesus. Illustration I believe God gave to me two nights ago. My sons have severe allergies, food allergies. They can't eat nothing, man. Dairy, egg, soy, peanut, shellfish, you know, the stuff that's found in practically every food in the United States of America. So we got to buy special things for them all the time that's different than what other people eat. It makes social events very stressful for us. 
because we've already had several mistakes where we didn't accidentally gave them something or somebody else then unintentionally gave them something. They got bad allergies. They end up in a, you know, it could be bad. So we, we are under this constant tension of like, dang, God, <laughs> stupid allergies, man. Like, this is, this is tough on them and it's tough on us. We're tired of seeing them disappointed. When the teacher passing out candy at school and they can't have it. And it's just hard for us to see that. I believe God gave me a little, little, little revelation the other night. <laughs> Since our children can't have the things that everybody else can have, here's what we told them at the beginning of the school year. This has been our tradition for years. When somebody offered you something, you ain't got to say no to it. Just don't eat it yet. Take it, bring the candy home, and put it in your mother and father's hands. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through that bucket of candy, and we're going to sort out. This is good for you. This will put you in the ER. This going to taste good. This going to swell your face. This going to really make your belly feel good. This going to give you breathing problems. And we're going to sort out. Everything that you can't have from everything that you can't have. So now the answer is not just no to everything because you're allergic. The answer is you're going to trust your mommy and you're going to trust your daddy that we love you enough not to give you what's going to kill you. That was the encouragement that God gave me the other night. He says the same way you love your boys. And you only want the best for them. It's the same way I love my church. And I only want the best for them. Psalm 84:11. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. James 1 and 7. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shift in shadow. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, if you be an evil, Know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts to those who love him? Take all your hopes, all your dreams, all your desires, all your aspirations, and bow down before your king and say, I'm landing at your feet because you know better than me. You know what's going to put me in the hospital, and you know what's going to be enjoyable for me. That's what it means to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow him. You know the beautiful thing about allergies? Is that in rare cases, you can outgrow them. You can be allergic to dairy at five, and then at 15, you can sip that milkshake with no issue. Meaning you can outgrow the adverse effect that that food used to have on you. So even though it used to be bad for you, now you can have it. There's some people in this room, I believe this is your word God has for you, and it's not for me to say who it's for, but here's what I sense the Lord is saying through his word. For some of you, you can't have it now because you're allergic to it. But if you outgrow that allergy, what's bad for you now may not be bad for you later And maybe that's when God will say, here, my child, now you can enjoy the blessing inside my will, not outside of it. 
But the sacrifice is to tell God, I'm going to let you choose. So if your answer is no forever, then it's no forever. He says we got to take up our cross every day. He said, now you can follow me. (laughs) You holding on to all that? Double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You can't do both. Can't serve two masters. You love one, despise the other. He says, now, if you deny yourself, now you can follow me. You still trying to hold on to your agenda, and you're trying to follow mine, then what you going to do when those agendas contradict? So you got got to choose one. If you want to be his disciple, lay it down at his feet. Last two points. Verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. What does Jesus mean when he says whoever wants to save his life will lose it? There's another literal way to look at it, and I believe there's a metaphorical application. He's saying, look, to to wish to save your life is synonymous with uh, denying Jesus in order to avoid the crucifixion. So he's, he, remember, he's preparing them for martyrdom. He knows they're going to be martyred for the faith. So he's saying, look, if they tell you choose Jesus or choose the cross, you need to choose the cross. If you're trying to save your life, then you're going to choose life. And then you're going to forfeit your soul for that. If you deny me, that shows you don't know me, you don't love me, you're going to face judgment with the rest of the world. So that's what it means to save your life. To lose your life is to say, I'm going to let go everything down here. And I'm going to say, Jesus is Lord, and I'm going to take the guillotine on my neck. He says, if you do that, you're actually gaining your life. What does he mean? All oh, this is temporary. It's only but so long, right? It's only but so, only, it's only but so long. It's like, what's the point of gaining everything down here for a couple years and losing everything up there that's going to last unending? So he says, the value should be common sense. Of course, I'm going to take the eternal value, even though the temporary thing is going to hurt. But it's only going to hurt for a second as opposed to hurting for all of eternity. So he's like, let's use some sense here and choose the right thing. So he says, the consequence of denying me is eternal judgment. He's speaking literally right now. But the reward of choosing me is you'll inherit eternal life. But then he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into glory with his Father. What does he mean by that? The book of Revelation says that when Jesus Christ comes, he's going to have judgment in one hand, and he's going to have his reward in the other hand. I think it's Revelation 22. Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. He's going to come. He's going to destroy all his enemies, and after that, it's the, it's the Grammys on steroids for his people. we passing out rewards. He says there's an eternal reward. For our sacrifice. There's an eternal reward. What you sacrifice down here going to last you. And that's going to come up at the judgment. And Jesus is going to say, you wait a minute. You lay that down for the kingdom? Oh, we about to hook you up with some serious mansions up in this thing. 
That's down the line, right? But I believe there's a more practical or more immediate way we can look at this. When he says the one who, who, who saves his life will lose it and the one who loses it will find it, I believe we could look at that like this as well. To, to save my life would be to hold on to all my dreams, goals, passions, aspirations, and then say no to whatever the will of God is. So I go throughout my Christian life unfulfilled. Meaning I, I, I miss out on what real life is all about. Meaning, okay, I finally do get married or I finally do get the six-bedroom home or whatever the dream and aspiration is, and then here's what happens. I find out this didn't really fulfill me like I thought it did. Wow. Wow. Because you lost your real life. Jesus says, I come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundant. You can't have abundant life outside the will of God. Can't happen. So once you take yourself out the will of God, it's not that you can't acquire. You can acquire stuff in the flesh. Everything y'all want in this room and that I want in this room right now, you can get it without Jesus. You can just go and get it. Look at the world. Whatever worldly things you want, you can go out and get. The problem is you're going to get it outside of the will of God, and it's not going to bring you anything. Just talk to celebrities. So the entertainment world is in shambles. We have at least one suicide a year from big-name celebrities. Come on, man. There's no fulfillment in those things. So, so we can look at it that way, which means that the opposite would be, okay, to gain my life is to deny myself and all those passions. And, yeah, I might take that L for some things down here. But then you'll start realizing, like, man, but all my joy ain't from stuff no more. My joy, my, my happiness, my peace is really coming from the things of the kingdom. So now when God does bless me with some earthly thing, this is like a bonus. Like, I'm like way good without it now, but thanks, Lord. I'm going to enjoy the blessing now. There's a way we could look at it that way. I'll leave you with this. Many of you in this room, I'm sure you've made sacrifices for the kingdom already. Here's what God wants, I believe God wants us to know. God's reward for sacrifice don't begin in heaven. It begins down here. Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, nobody who has left wives, brothers, sisters, mother, father, or possessions for my sake will not receive a hundredfold in this life. And in the life to come. Read it. That's what he said. Prosperity preachers turn that into something that is not. We don't have time to. But what he's saying is that there is an earthly reward to sacrifice now. It ain't all wait till you die and go to heaven. Those of you who have made sacrifices, been making sacrifices for Jesus. Those of you who know, I could be married right now if I wanted to. I really, really could. Like, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lightweight. That, that, that guy. I'm that dude. I'm that, I'm that woman. Like, I, I ain't gotta be out here sin. But you out here making choices because you know you would be unequally yoked with this person. Well, that's a, that's a deny yourself moment right there. Those of you who are making financial decisions based upon the good of others, not yourself. Those of you making career choices based on the good of others, not just yourself. Those of you who are taking care of, of, of people who can't take care of themselves, so you're making, making choices that will inconvenience you for others. You think the Jesus you serve going to sit up in heaven and see that and not respond? He sees all that. And he's looking down. He's like, I'm going to hook you up. I don't know how. 
I'm going to do it. Well, he knows. I don't know how he's going to do it. <laughs> I don't know how. But he wants you to know that he sees your sacrifice. And he's going to bless you, not just in the life to come, but for, during the life on this earth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the revelation of your word. It's powerful, it's true, it's relevant. And God, it works. Would you help us to obey you today? God, it is hard to receive some of these teachings that you set forth in the scripture. But we know it's true. We believe it's true. We know you require obedience. So would you help us to obey you? God, there are people under the sound of my voice who have hopes and dreams and aspirations. They may be a little conflicted right now. What's your will? what's not your will. I pray that in this season of life, you will make it clear to them. If you went here in, in the room today and you feel conflicted, you, you need some wisdom. You like, ooh, I heard the word today and I want to apply this, but I'm not sure how or I do know how, but I'm scared to. Can you come to the front? I want to pray for you. Anybody? Anything I said today, if you conflicted, based on what we talked about today, I want to pray for you. I want to pray over all of you today. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just pray that your spirit will begin to minister to your sheep. Lord, you, you, you love us so deeply. And you know us so deeply. You know the confliction that's in our heart right now. The indifference. The fear. Of what your response may be. Remove the fear in Jesus name. In Jesus name. Satan you are rejected. Your lies are resisted. The word of God says, resist the devil and you will flee. We resist you. The lies that you are placing in your people's minds right now, we resist you. We reject you in the authority of Jesus the Christ. Father, we pray for spiritual clarity in the room right now. Block out every demonic thought, every cloudy thought, every thought of confusion, every anxious thought, every hopeless thought. Every, I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life, thought God, we pray in the name of Jesus that through your Holy Spirit, you will remove every negative thought from the darkness and that you will replace it with thoughts of love, thoughts of hope, thoughts of joy, thoughts of peace, everything that comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, I pray that those thoughts will begin to reign in the minds and hearts of your people right now. Remove every fearful thought. 
Every demonic spirit, we reject you. In the name of Jesus, we resist your agenda. Father, we ask right now for a strong sense of humility in the heart of everybody under the sound of my voice that whatever the dream is, whatever the hope is, whatever the prayer request is, whatever the thing that they have been yearning for year after year, day after day, whatever it is, God, would you supernaturally now help them to yield? Help them to yield. Help us all to yield before you right now. To submit. Your word says, submit yourselves, therefore, to the mighty hand of God, and he would exalt us in due season. God, we pray right now that we would be able to submit ourselves to your mighty hand, and we will lay everything at your feet right now. Everybody in the room, whatever the thing is, I can't tell you what to do because that's between you and God. But if you are serious about laying this at the feet of Jesus, I pray that you will call it out by name, either out loud or in your mind. And you will make a choice to say, Jesus, I'm giving this to you today. I'm giving it to you. Just begin to lay it at his feet. Whatever it is, remember, not just bad stuff. It may be good stuff. It may be noble. Whatever it is, you're going to give it to the Father. And you said, I'm going to allow you, God. I'm going to let you choose for me. What your will is for my life, whether I want it or not. I'm going to give you some time to pray that, and I'm going to tell you what we can ask next. Hallelujah, God. Thank you, Jesus. Lay it at his feet. Remember, loving Father. Don't listen to any lie telling you he's a vindictive, vengeful, party pooper who does not want his kids to have joy. Loving father. Hallelujah, God. Lay it at his feet. Next thing you may be led to pray. God, I'm asking that you supernaturally empower me. Give me supernatural strength to accept whatever your answer is. Whether I never have it, experience it, or whether it's just for a season, that God will give you supernatural strength to endure hardship. Lay it at his feet. Thank you, Jesus. God, we just want to do your will. And it's hard. We need you. Your people need you. God, will you just give them an encounter with your spirit? We need to feel your presence. You would not ask us to do anything that you do not give us the ability to do. If you said deny ourselves and take up our cross... That means you're going to equip us with the tools to do it. Father, right now, I pray that you would give clear revelation and insight to your sheep as to what your will is for their life. God, would you just speak to them right now? 
what your will is. What is it that you're calling them to do? What is it that needs to be prioritized? What is it that needs to be the focus and the emphasis of their life in this season, right now? We're not talking about years on the line. Lord, I'm asking for revelation right now that you would just speak it to their spirits and that you would confirm it through other godly believers and that you would give them clear confirmation so that they wouldn't waver, but that they would know this is from you, that you will confirm it in their Bible study time when they're in the scriptures, that they will see application that confirms the word that you're speaking to them so that they can be confident that they're in your will. Hallelujah, God. Jesus, I believe we've done what you've asked us to do. May it not end today, but may we start, may today mark a new day of a new journey in which you are really Lord, not just because we say it, but we live as though you are the Lord of our life and you're calling the shots. Can we just worship the Father for a second? Can we just worship him? Hallelujah, God.